0: Do you persecute me? Who are you? I am Jesus, whom you persecute. glad that you're all here today you can pull your notes out for today's message if you like and or perhaps you use a device and so you we have a life church app by the way that you can uh, use your device to to go to the app and you can do it all online or on app I guess you would say if you care to do it that way however you like to do it we're glad that all of you are here and we welcome all of you who are watching us online as well God bless you we welcome you to life church this morning and um that, that video that you just saw is a portion of the uh, film that showed last Sunday night uh, on the television program on NBC, AD The Bible Continues. Uh, I don't know if you're watching it or not, but it is just an excellent series. It's gonna take us through about the first half or so, maybe a little bit more of the book of Acts and powerful message, powerful drama. They really do a good job with it. In this particular uh, uh, session last Sunday night, uh, it showed us the transformation of, of a man who was considered to be probably the greatest persecutor of early church Christians, a man by the name of Saul. Something happened in his life. Saul was a Pharisee, which is uh, the strictest sect of of, uh, of, the, of the Jewish religious uh, uh, group and, and he was a part of, of these Pharisees and because of it he believed that Jesus was a false messiah. And because of that, he made it his life's mission to stamp out any remembrance of Jesus Christ, any of the followers of Jesus Christ. He made that his mission in life. Acts chapter 9 tells us about this, beginning with verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats. With every breath, I underlined that part there just for you to get the the spirit behind this guy, how, how possessed he was with trying to kill believers. In fact, it says that, I underlined that next little part, eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest and he requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way that he found there, he wanted to bring them back, both men and women, to Jerusalem in chains. And some of those, would, those people would spend years in prison, others would actually be executed. But something happened to Saul on the way to Damascus. A powerful encounter, which you just saw uh, dramatized, with Jesus Christ. And, And Acts chapter 9 continues to give us the story of what took place, what I call a close encounter of the spiritual kind, took place in Saul's life. Verse 3, as he was approaching Damascus on his mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked, and the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up, go to the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but they saw no one. And Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by hand to Damascus, and he remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Can you imagine what that must have been like? Put yourself in Saul's sandals. Put, put yourself in his situation. What would that be like? not just to experience what he experienced, but this is what I, wanna, I want you to think about. Can you imagine everything you've been taught, everything you've been told in an instant to be proven wrong, to be proven false? Everything you've been taught about God, wrong. Everything you've believed about God, suddenly false, that's what happened to him. In that instant, everything that he had believed up to that point, in fact, everything he was doing to fulfill what he believed was proved in that instant to be wrong, to be false. Can you imagine how that would feel? It reminds me a lot of what some of you have gone through. Oddly enough, it reminds me of a lot of the people that come to this church today who were once a part of a, of a, a religious system And that in that religious system, you found a a sense of uh, security and you found a sense of meaning and perhaps you found a sense of even uh, a spiritual, uh, what you felt to be insight or comfort to your heart. But through the process of time, suddenly it became obvious to you that what you had been told and what you had been taught was not right. It was incorrect, it was false. And everything you thought was right spiritually suddenly is shown to be wrong, is shown to be false. You know, you have a choice to make when you come to that realization, if that happens to you. You have a choice to make with your life. When something that you've always believed to be true is suddenly shown to be false, you can walk away from any semblance of truth. You can walk away from anything that claims true faith entirely and become an agnostic at best or an atheist at worst, or it can actually serve to open your heart, to draw you to find what the truth is, to search for it like you would for gold or for silver. You know it's there, I'm gonna find what the truth is because I know it's there. I have known people in my life who have gone both ways. When when they have been confronted with the obvious reality that what they have believed, perhaps for a lifetime, is not true, I've seen them pull away from any claim to truth. I've seen them pull away from any claim to faith in Christ, but I've also seen the opposite. People opening their hearts to God, going after the truth, seeking the truth, and finding the truth that they couldn't find through religion. The difference I see between these two approaches is in the quality of life after. If all truth is rejected by a person because the first truth proved to be false, What I see in people like that is an empty and a meaningless life. Because really, if there is no truth and there is no God, then what purpose does life have? You say, well, I wanna own the biggest and the best, but even that becomes meaningless after a while. You can have it all and end up feeling, is that all there is? Is that all there is to life? And many an individual has has ended their life with the frustration of feeling that everything they thought about the American dream was not as fulfilling to them as what they thought it would be because they have no God behind it. They have no God as a basis. They have no truth as a foundation to their life. If a faith challenge leads you to reject all faith, it doesn't usually leave you a better person It usually leaves you empty. It usually leaves you cynical and that will destroy you. But all over this church body are people who took a different approach. Instead of rejecting all truth because of one false truth, It caused them to seek harder for the real truth. And the result of their life, what has happened in their life, has been a a life set free with new purpose and with new fulfillment. They have a reason for living now, which takes them beyond just the American dream. And now they are living for God and they're living for Jesus and they're living with a sense of eternity in their hearts. My point to you this morning is that it doesn't matter what religion you are a part of. Religion will eventually disappoint you. It will leave you shallow because God made us not to be religious, but to be in relationship, to be in fellowship with him. And only relationship and fellowship will fill your soul with the meaning and the purpose that you need in your life. Jesus said it this way in John chapter eight, verse 32. Then you will experience for yourselves the truth. I, I wanna pause right there. Truth is something you don't just know, it's something you can experience. And it's something that dynamically changes you from the person that you are. I was talking with one of our families this morning. This, this man is a grandfather, and he led, led his grandson just in the last couple of weeks to Jesus. He gave his heart to Jesus, and the transformation in this little eight- or nine-year-old boy has been so dramatic the rest of the family has noticed. We're not talking about a religious philo, a philosophy. A philosophy will not do that for you. The only thing that can change you is a close encounter of the spiritual kind. And that's what Saul had, and that's what this little boy had through the words of his grandfather as his grandfather led him to Jesus Christ as Savior. That little boy experienced for himself the truth. I'm here to tell you, you can experience truth in your life if you want it. And Jesus says, the truth will free you. And then I love verse 36 because if the sun sets you free, you are free through and through. Hallelujah. What a great way of talking about it. Completely, totally. Only real truth will satisfy your soul through and through. Religion can give you some short-term satisfaction. It can. Doesn't last long but it can give you short-term satisfaction. That's what Saul had. He had a short-term satisfaction and a purpose to his life in hunting down believers. There was a sense of purpose in him impassioned uh, purpose to to hunting down believers, imprisoning them and and killing even some of them. But when he had his close encounter of the spiritual kind, what he was and what he was doing and what he was becoming no longer satisfied his, his soul, his life. He wasn't free anymore through and through. He wasn't complete through and through. Instead that led him to something that was deeper and that deeper something was a someone and his name was Jesus and Jesus touched him and transformed him and made him into a new man. And and in going through his story here in Acts chapter 9, I saw some important things that I believe God wanted me to tell you today about what God wants to do and how he wants to work within your life. So let me just give you three principles this morning that I want to share with you. And the first principle would be this that I picked up from this story. God can use anyone. Anyone. You say, me? I don't mean me. I mean, you're saying that. Me? About you. Me? God can use me? God can use you. Absolutely. The story of of Saul's conversion from religion to faith in Jesus Christ continues with God tapping the shoulder of a very devout believer in Jesus by the name of Ananias. And the Holy Spirit comes to Ananias and says, Ananias, I want you to go meet someone and his name is Saul. And he's staying over at a guy's house by the name of Judas. That's not Judas Iscariot. It's a different Judas. Goes over to Judas's house and he says, he lives over on Straight Street. That's Straight Street, not State Street. He, he, he lives over on Straight Street. I want you to go to State, Straight State Street. I want you to go to Straight Street. And I want you to go to Judas's house because a guy by the name of Saul is there. You know Saul, the guy who's killing all the people like you. That's that's where I want you to go. I want you to go and, and see Saul because he's expecting you to show up. So, of course, Ananias knew all about what Saul had been doing, how he'd been imprisoning believers, how he'd been killing some of the believers. And so he began to voice his concern as to what he was hearing from God. And he's thinking to himself, uh... Am I hearing this straight, Lord? Um, I'm reading between the lines. Um, did you really say that, Lord? Is that last night's pizza? I don't know if they had pizza back then or not. But anyway, w- w- did I did I get a hold of a of a bad piece of well, not pork. I I don't know what they. But anyway, did I get a hold of something that made me uh, hear things? I don't know. And anyway, he begins to object to what he feels like God is telling him. Telling him, now Lord, this is gonna be really dangerous. You know how Saul has been and you know what he does. And and if he's blind right now, that's the way we want him to stay because if if he gets his eyes open, he might kill me, you know? So I really don't know that I'm the guy for this job and maybe you'd like to send somebody else. Any chance of that? Any chance you'd like to send somebody else? That reminds me of Moses. Moses uh, tapped, well, God tapped Moses on the shoulder one day and he says, I want you to go to the king of Egypt by the name of, we called him Pharaoh. I want you to go to Pharaoh and, and I want you to tell Pharaoh to let the Jews go. The Jews were in, in slavery. They're in bondage and slavery to the Egyptians. And he says, I want you to go and tell Pharaoh that I am the God of the Jews and, and I want my people to be let go. And so you're supposed to let them go. And... Um, Moses immediately begins to tell God why, all the reasons why he's a bad choice for this. You know, uh, if you read the stories, uh, no, I, I can't be the one that you want to go see Pharaoh. I mean, look at me, I, I look like a bum, you know, and I'm supposed to go in front of royalty dressed like this, you know, and and besides that, they hate me because I used to be there and I ended up killing an Egyptian, you know, and, and I had to run for my life. If I go back, they're gonna kill me. And Pharaoh's not gonna listen to me and so forth. You know, one of the things that I have noticed through the years, is that people God chooses to have, or chooses to use, um, have reasons why God shouldn't choose them? It seems like when God wants to use you for something great, there's always those types of people. Usually, end up saying, "No, no, I'm not the one, Lord. I, I don't think I don't think you realize who you're asking here. I don't think you know how bad I am. I don't think you know how much I mess up. Maybe." Lord, I'm not qualified. Maybe you ought to get somebody else. You ever thought that? Moses said, ultimately, well, God, I stutter too much. And Ananias said, well, ultimately I fear too much. For me, I am talking about me now. I told God that I didn't come from the right stock. I didn't have the right pedigree. I didn't have the right heritage. Um, some, of you, uh, some of you knew my parents when they were still living. They used to live here in the Salt Lake area. And some of you knew who they were and all, and you know they were wonderful Christian people. My mom and dad got saved uh, just prior to World War II. So my dad went to war uh, as a as a born again saved, saved person and mom stayed back like all the women of that time and worked to keep the soldiers on the field. Uh, and my dad happened to be sent to Europe. And fortunately he lived through the war and he came back and, and my mom and dad were pillars of the church, my home church in Northern Indiana where I was born and raised and so forth. They were pillars of that church. So I have a great heritage that uh, I grew up into. But when when I sensed that God wanted me to go into a ministry and to commit my life to that, I I just reminded Jesus that, you know, even though my parents are great people, we don't have a a name, nobody knows who I am. Um, I, I don't have the kind of clout you need to really, you know, effectively touch people for the Lord. I mean, I'm a nobody, and are you sure? I don't have the kind of name recognition, all that. But I've learned a few things through the years. I want to give you two of them. The first thing I've learned is that God never accepts our excuses. He didn't accept it from Moses and he didn't accept it from Ananias and he didn't accept it from me. Now you can, you can run from God's will in your life. Um, I'm thinking of a guy by the name of Jonah who ran from God's will for his life and you, you may end up in the middle, of, in the belly of a whale Uh, I mean, you can do that if you want. If you wanna go that way, you can just end up in. Now, that probably won't happen for most of us here in Utah because we're not, well, what I would suggest is that you not go out by the Great Salt Lake. I don't know if there's any whales out there, but you know, if you're rebelling against God and, and the Lord saw fit to it, he could create one to swallow you up and keep you for a few days inside till you decided to surrender your heart. But probably that won't happen. But I will tell you this, that God will not accept our excuse. He knows everything about you. He knows about your positive qualities. He knows about your negatives. He knows about your strengths, your weaknesses. And believe me, all of us have both. None of us is perfect. You don't get good enough to be used by God. God just sovereignly chooses the plan for your life. What I'm going to suggest to you is quit making excuses because he won't accept them anyway. The second thing I've noticed in life is that God will empower you to do what He asks you to do. You think, well, I don't have the ability to do this. God will give you the ability to do it. So Ananias now he went to see Saul, and I just kind of put my myself in his in his uh, his sandals, his shoes, you know, and. And you can imagine what he's thinking, walking all the way from his house over to where Saul's at. And he must, he's probably playing this out in his mind. Oh God, are you, are you sure? I sure hope that I don't heal this man. And then he puts a dagger in my stomach. You know, um, I, I sure hope this works out. I sure hope I'm doing the right thing on and on, whatever it was he thought. And all the way there, he's trembling with fear probably. But this is the way it happened, verses 17, 18, and 19. It says, Ananias went and found Saul and he laid his hands on him and he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might begin or regain rather your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And instantly something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight and then he got up and was baptized. That means he he accepted Christ as his savior and then he was water baptized. And afterward, he ate some food and regained his strength. And I want you to think about this for just a moment. That one thing right there, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ in this room, that one thing right there affected your life today. Because Saul became the Apostle Paul and Peter who ministered to the Jews primarily Paul was sent primarily to the Gentiles. That's probably most every one of us in this room. And because Paul, Saul became Paul, and Paul went to the Gentiles, that message got all the way to where you and I are in 2015. The odds that you and I would hear the gospel message in a world of billions and billions of people are so infinitesimally small that you should never allow yourself to take for granted what has happened in your life. The fact that you are saved, that your sins are forgiven, that Jesus is your Lord and that you are on your way to heaven. Never lose the joy of what happened because Ananias sucked it up went over and prayed for Saul took a chance and that event reached us today now that brings me to the second thought I want to share with you always do what God asks you to do it's as simple as that now I want to make two comments about this thought This is what I've learned. Number one, that you will be happiest with your life doing what God has asked you to do. The reverse of that is also true. You will be the sourest, the most unhappy, the the most unfulfilled when you know you're supposed to do one thing, but you don't do it. And you go a separate way with your life. But you will be happiest with your life if you do what God is calling you to do with your life. God doesn't call all Christians to do what I'm doing. Not all of you have been called to do this, but some of you have. And God is gonna prepare you for the day when you will kick me out and be sitting up here. Okay, Steve, come on up here. Let's, let's, uh, let's, let's see how you do, buddy. <laughs> You know, there's a time for amen, and there's a, not a time for amen. That was not a time. Why do you want to bet Steve doesn't do another amen for weeks? <laughs> Maybe years. <laughs> All right. When I was a teenager, I can remember thinking about this very thing. God called me into ministry. Uh, I mean, it's a divine call that we believe that we've received from God. It's, it wasn't like I heard a voice. I heard a voice in here in my heart, in my spirit, that God was calling me to do this, and I was 16 years old, and this is what I knew. Even at the age of 16, I knew that if I was going to be happy in life, I was going to have to follow God's will for my life completely. I instinctively knew that. There was no question in my mind. Plus, I knew that God had my best interests in mind. I knew those two things. I believed them, I trusted them. And now after all of these years, you see, I was 16 then, so I, the last 20 years. Um, no amens, no amens, sorry. And, and now for the last whatever number of years it's been, I can tell you all these years later that those feelings were exactly right. That if I was gonna be happy in life, I had to live it God's way, do God's will for my life, and that God had my best interests in mind. And I have proven that to be absolutely correct and true with my life. In fact, following God's will, this is gonna, I'm going I'm to give you my testimony right now, okay? Following God's will for my life has been the single most right decision that I have ever made in my life. It's more important than my decision for her. It's more important than my decision for what churches that we have served. It's more important than anything else that I've ever done in my life because this has affected the character of who I am as a person. In fact, had I not made that decision, she would have never connected with me because she was looking for a a man with a heart after God. And if I would not have had that heart after God, she would have had nothing to do with me. And I'd have walked around campus like a whimpering dog instead of the prettiest girl on campus on my arm. I didn't do it to get her. That's a side benefit that came. I made the decision before I ever met her. But the commitment to God has been the single most right decision that I have ever made with my life. Now, can you imagine the joy in Ananias' heart after Saul gave his life to Jesus Christ? All of his worries, all of his fears are gone. Everything he was thinking, trembling about all the way from his house over to where Saul's at, everything is gone. He walks in, he lays his hands on, he's cringing, but he says, God, I'm gonna do what you want me to do. He lays hands on Saul. he prays for him. Saul gets his eyes back and he converts to faith in Jesus Christ. And I'll let you know that that was absolutely, the I'll guarantee you, he the most joyful experience Ananias ever had in his life. He was so thankful at that moment. He had followed the will of God for his life. When you do what you know God wants you to do with your life, it will give you a sense of purpose and fulfillment and joy that nothing else... I I don't care how much you own, how many positions you hold. None of that bears any close resemblance to what you get when you have led somebody to the Lord, when you have done what God has asked you to do with your life. Wow, you talk about living with fulfillment and joy. He had it. Second thing I want to tell you is you'll do more than you thought you could do with your life. So, always do what God asks you to do. Why? Because you'll be happiest if you do. And I will tell you this you will do more than you thought you could do with your life. And some of you have sold yourself short. You have. You think I could never do with my life what God is asking me to do, but that's just not true. You have capacity that you don't even know about. And if you never tap into that capacity, if you never make that, that commitment to God where you, you give your life fully to his will for your life, you're gonna live your whole life and you're gonna end up with your life lived without ever fulfilling your potential. That's what got the unfaithful servant in trouble in Matthew chapter 25. Jesus tells a story, and this is what he says, that, that a master, a wealthy master, brought in three of his servants. And he says, I'm, I'm gonna give you each a sum of money. If you read the King James Bible, they're called talents. That's really not a bad way of thinking about it because we think of talent as ability, but really back then, talent was, was a sum of money. And so, what he gave to the one man was was uh, one servant. He gave him ten bags of silver, and to another man, he, uh, another servant, he gave five bags, and to the last servant, he gave him only one bag of silver. And it was a good thing because. That that servant proved to be an unfaithful servant. He he took what the master gave him and he never used it. In fact, if you know the story, he dug it, dug a hole in the ground, and he buried it. And he said, There, I'll just I'll just get it out of my sight and I won't ever have to worry about it. I'll give it back to, to the master when he comes and settles accounts. And so when the master shows up and settles accounts, he thanks the guy who he gave ten to, because he doubled it to, to another ten. And And so now he has 20, and then he thanked the guy with five because now he doubled, and he's got 10, he's turning in. And then to the third guy, uh, this is what he says in verse number 26. He says, you wicked and lazy servant. And then he says, take the money from this servant and give it to the one with 10 bags of silver. Now, that's so contrary to how we think. I mean, good grief, the guy with 10. He's already got 10, what's he need another one for? The poor guy down here with only one, we gotta take some of the 10, That this is pop culture today. We gotta take some of the 10 and give it down to the guy with the one. And that's the way our society thinks and how we operate. That is not how God thinks and how God operates. In fact, an incredible principle of, of God's view of all of this is given to us then in verse 29, where he says, to those who use well what they are given, even more will be given and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. And so we sit back and we say, God, I don't have the ability. I don't have, compared to brother so-and-so, compared to sister so-and-so, I'm nothing. That may be true. That may be true that you have nothing. God says, I'm not asking how much you have, I'm asking how available you are to use what you have for my glory. And if you are willing to say, Lord, whatever you ask me to do, I will give you my all. I'll give it all to you. I will guarantee that Jesus will multiply whatever you give to him. He'll expand it far beyond what you ever thought it would be, whatever you had ever thought or could have believed for. So this is what I'm saying. If you wanna be happy in your life, submit yourself to the will of God. Give yourself over to the plan of God for your life. Live for Jesus completely and fully. He'll take you places you never dreamed of. Okay, I'm a minute over. Give me, how many of you believe I can do the last point in 30 seconds? You foolish people, you foolish people. But hang with me, the last one's good too. If you've got to go at twelve, get up and go right now so you don't interrupt my my third point. okay This is important. Number three, no one is beyond God's grace. That's the third principle I learn out of this story. You know if we had lived back in Saul's time and we had been asked to compile a list of the of the top 100 most impossible people to reach for Jesus. I don't know who would have been number one, but I'll bet you Saul would have been probably right up there at the top, maybe next to Caiaphas and Pilate, <laughs> you know, because oh, these guys will never come to, to Jesus. I didn't fully understand the kind of passion and hatred in Saul's heart for Christians. I couldn't really comprehend that as I would read the story through the years until I have seen the hatred against Christians in, in groups like ISIS today. That is so foreign to me. I don't understand that kind of hatred. When Carrie and I, along with Pastor John and Karen, went a year ago to Israel, we visited a place called the Temple Mount. Most of you know it, you've seen pictures of it. It's got, it used to be where, where the temple sat but in AD 70, the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem and they tore down the temple at that time and that was the end of the temple. The temple's never been built since AD 70. So, um, you know, a long time. In its place has been built a Muslim mosque and you've seen the mosque, it's a gold dome mosque that sits there on the temple mount. But um, now, The the Temple Mount is controlled by Israel, but that area is still primarily a Muslim area. Well, it is a Muslim area because it's a holy place uh, for their religion. Now, we don't know for sure what happened, but while we were there, suddenly a group of Muslim men began, they stood up and began shouting and yelling, Allah is great. Allah is God, Allah is great. And they said it over and over and over again. And as this group started doing that, and, and other groups from around the Temple Mount area all joined in and until it became a big group of men and they were all yelling and screaming with impassioned voices, Allah is great, Allah is God, Allah is great. And our tour, our tour guide quickly got us off of the Temple Mount. And then when we got away from the area and had a chance to sit down, he, he kind of said, probably what happened was that this group of Muslims saw some Jews or some Christians, either one, either praying or singing quietly to themselves while they were up there on the Temple Mount, and that set them all off. And it ensued a virtual riot, which necessitated the Israeli soldiers to come in and and calm it back down. Uh, I mean, no shots were fired or anything, but it calmed everything back down until peace returned to the area. I thought about that. You know, most Westerners, we aren't wired that way. We, we don't tend to like to stand around and shout for hours on end, unless it's a football game. <laughs> but apart from that, we don't tend to do those kind of things. But this kind of thing happens regularly in places like Iran and Pakistan and the Temple Mount and, and and all of these kinds of areas. And it becomes easy to look at people like that and to think they're beyond hope. Boy, they'll never come to Jesus. But here's what God wants to say to us today. Absolutely no one is beyond hope. Back in the 1950s, a gang leader of what at the time was the most violent street gang in New York City called the Mau Mau's. That gang leader was confronted by, a, by the love of God through a skinny, rural Pennsylvania street preacher by the name of David Wilkerson. The gang leader's name was Nicky Cruz. Some of you have heard Nicky. David Wilkerson went to be with the Lord back in 2011. But Nicky is still alive today. I remember reading the story in the cross and the switchblade. And at one point in their relationship, the relationship between Wilkerson and Cruz, at one point in their relationship, Nicky was under such conviction and he was so angry. And you know, keep in mind, he's the leader of the most violent gang in New York City. You don't mess with this guy, but this skinny little preacher kept bringing the love of God to him. And one time uh, Cruz said to David Wilkerson, if you don't shut your mouth and stop talking to me about this Jesus, I'm gonna cut you up into a thousand pieces. And David Wilkerson said to him, if you do, every piece will say, Nikki, I love you. Well, he ran away but he couldn't get away from God and he couldn't get away from the love of God that came through Wilkerson. And eventually he surrendered his heart to Jesus Christ and became one of the most significant ministers to inner city youth and into gang ridden areas of our inner cities in America. He became one of the most powerful voices for the love of God and still continues to do that today. He's in his seventies now, but he's still doing it. But you know, that brings up an important question that I just wanna close by asking you today. Who is spiritually impossible in your life? Who's beyond hope in your life? Um, your son, your daughter, a neighbor, someone at work given up on them? Your husband, your wife, maybe you. Maybe you've given up on yourself. If you have, then God sent you here today to hear just one thing. And the one thing is this, that God has not given up on you and that there is no sin that you can commit that will negate God's love for your life. If you will turn yourself to the amazing love of this amazing God, he will accept you. See, the biggest lie the devil tells people is that they have to get good enough for God to accept them. When I get good enough, then I'll go to church. If I go to church the way I am right now, the ceiling, the the roof will cave in. Well, if some of you thought that, I just wanna submit to you, the roof is still up there. It didn't cave in when you walked into this place. You wanna know why? Because God does not judge us the way we judge each other or the way we judge ourselves. Jesus will accept you just the way you are. If you could be good enough without God, then you wouldn't need God. The point of all of this is that none of us could be good enough without God. We need God in our life, and he will accept you, and he will save you, and he will change you. Paul was a murderer. Jesus saved him anyway. Nicky Cruz was a gang leader of the most violent gang in all of New York City. God only knows what he did. Jesus saved him anyway. All over this room today are people that the devil used up and the world gave up on, but not Jesus. And today, they are changed people. Today, they are delivered people. Today, they are set free people, hallelujah, on their way to heaven. And if you wonder if it can happen for you, God sent you into this room today to hear this one thing. Yes, it can happen for you if you will turn your life over to Jesus and receive his revelation as Savior into your life. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Here at Life Church, we pray that you have a blessed week. Please connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or you can always go to LifeChurchUtah.com.